นะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโทอะระหะโทสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโทอะระหะโทสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธัมมังสังฆังนามสามิ
Uh, I became interested in, in Japan, of all places, in, when I was in the, the American Navy. And so, just reading a book on Zen Buddhism uh, had such a profound effect on me. I was about 21 years old, and uh, just reading out of a book on Zen Buddhism, translated into English, uh, made this, in, in this shift, a kind of change of direction. Before that, I kind of lost interest in religion and uh, was just living as a young person does, having at that age in the military, just getting through the military side of it and trying to have a good time. And then uh, this interest in, in Buddha Dhamma occurred and following that interest for over 50 years, seeing that uh, thought, first it was just personal uh, interest, the kind of oddity of my character, but now we see so many people interested and willing to uh, commit themselves to monastic forms and monastic life here in, uh, in Europe. Now this is, uh, this, of course, this is a life based on alms mendicancy. And this is a very strange thing to be in, in a modern capitalist system. Western way of thinking uh, has not produced alms mendicancy ever. In fact, it's, uh, you know, something so alien, so strange that, you know, it's quite a miracle that it has taken off and has been respected so well in this country. Because, uh, you know, our whole mindset, our cultural attitudes are based on uh, having security, financial security, independence, uh, human rights and privileges and, and all the the ideals of Western society, modern Western societies. And then when you become an alms mendicant, you give up those rights. And uh, you live according to uh, just the faith in the goodness of humanity. So it's, uh, it's an, an act, the survival of the song is based on trust, on faith in the goodness of the lay community. So this, uh, I think this is important for you to reflect upon in, uh, in, uh, in your lives because many of you, of course, come from Asian <coughs> or in Buddhist uh, countries, but many of you have not. So that it, it's uh, an interesting turn of events, being, the, being an alms mendicant now for so many years it's easy to take it for granted. And uh, that's therefore, in monastic life, we always reflect on this, on our lives as dependent on the goodness of others. And then this, of course, creates the opportunity for meditation practice. And this Buddhist meditation is a, is a, a way of training, of, of looking, of investigating our reality in a way that we would never think of in Western terms. Uh, I've found over the years, uh, just using the, the original teachings of the Lord Buddha as uh, in his first sermon, The Four Noble Truths, using that as a reference 
for my experience in life from over 42 years has been a very important way of, of seeing, of, of understanding, of, of recognizing uh, suffering and its causes and the way of non-suffering. So the Buddha pointed to dukkha or suffering as a noble truth and this it's, uh, it's, you know, we, of course, we, we can recognize this is what we all have in our lives. We experience discontentment, jealousy, fear, anxiety, anger, res resentment. There's so much in a human lifetime to, to uh, complain about or grumble, or, even if life has been fairly benevolent to us. But then you recognize that right now, at this time, there's terrible things going on in the world where people just living on the level of survival. And uh, you hear the news about places in Africa and survival in, in Afghanistan, places that where there is just, uh, just trying to, to survive, save your life, get enough to eat. So in the world now with its uh, enormous human population and its uh, unpredictable changes and uh, the uh, changing of the weather, the, the uh, greenhouse effect, whatever, they whatever, whatever concepts you have, the important thing is to recognize that the very nature of this is, is experience of suffering. That being born as a human being on this planet, in this kind of a body, is uh, about being born is the cause of death, of loss, of getting old, of pain. And of course, on the ideal level, we don't want any of this. We want to find happiness and eternal youth and good health and security from the conditions. Say the, the materialist mentality always is looking to the condition realm to try to control it and secure uh, have security from it. So as we can see the, the changing of the times with the banks and the economy and all the, the institutions that we put so much faith in and trust that were so, seemed so strong and, inv and invincible are now failing and falling apart. And so this first noble truth is even more apparent to us at this time than say it is when everything's going well. When everything's going well then we tend to to not want to think about it. We just hope that it continues. That our good health, happiness and success will will go on forever. But there's also a recognition that it won't. That inevitably uh, we have to grow old and that in, involves the aging process of the body, the stiffness, the disease and, and the in, inevitable death. We all have to experience loss in our lives, of loss of loved ones, seeing our parents get old and die, friends and relatives and so forth. And this is part of every human experience. And so the Buddha pointed to this, uh, not, as a, not in a judgmental way, but to awaken us too, this realm that we're living in, this realm is this way. It's not meant 
we're not meant to find security in it because its very nature is insecure. And when we realize this, when we truly accept this, then we, we don't create suffering anymore because we don't demand that it be otherwise. We can cope with the inevitable changes of the aging process, of loss of the loved, of changing conditions, of, of natural catastrophes and so forth. These are, these are beyond our ability to control and we can endure, we can uh, learn from strife, from difficulties, from loss if we understand the true nature, the Dhamma, if we awaken to this reality, to reality, then we can bear with the inevitable changes that we have to experience in a human lifetime. What we can't bear is our own ignorance when we just don't want it to be like this, when we want something to be something it can't be. Uh, you know, this is, this, is what, this is the suffering of the First Noble Truth. So like old age, if we don't want to get old, then that's the suffering of old age. Not getting old, but not wanting it. Uh, fear of death. death. Death is not suffering, but the fear of it is the suffering we create. Wanting to remain young and beautiful when we're getting old is suffering. Um, wanting somebody else to be the way we would like them to be is suffering. Not wanting to be the way we are is suffering. And on and on like this, you know, so it's always this wanting, wanting or not wanting, that we uh, create the misery or the, the suffering that is, uh, that we call the first noble truth. So it's a noble truth, meaning that suffering, rather than being something miserable and nasty, is to be seen in terms of when we open to it and investigate it, then we understand it and we can uh, let go of the causes of suffering, of human suffering, when we understand suffering as it is. So this is, this is what's noble about it, is we, we have to admit it, look at it, receive it, something maybe that we've been running away from or rejecting uh, all our lives as modern society despises that it does we want to have this illusion of being happy and and young and healthy and and everything is going to be fine everything is okay it's all right uh, we want these illusions tell me everything is okay even if it isn't just because if you tell me everything isn't okay then I start worrying have you ever seen that in yourself I've seen it in myself. <laughs> These tell me everything's okay. <laughs> if it's not, then I have to start worrying about it. And then somebody says, it's not okay. And I, oh my God, what? <laughs> what's going wrong now? So this is, this, this is where we begin to awaken. So the Buddha Dhamma is about awakening to reality. Now the reality, I like to, to use this word reality for the Pali word Dhamma because it, this is, this is, it's real, it's not, it's not compounded illusory, it's recognizable 
but you, you can't find it through desiring it. So the, the aim is to let go of desire, to see desire wanting or not wanting something, let, and seeing that by holding on, by clinging, attaching to desire, then we, we suffer. And so we're never awake to the real. We're merely operating from, this, from these desires, always trying to get rid of something or get hold of something that we don't have. So in, in, now this is a very simple teaching the Buddha established. The first sermon, the Tamajakapavatana Sutta, is brilliant. Perfect teaching, actually. If every other Buddhist text was lost, disappeared from the world forever, and only this one remained, the Tamajakapavatana Sutta, the first sermon, that would be enough. It's that excellent a teaching. So in this, in this tradition, the Pali tradition, we regard this as the first sermon after the Buddha's enlightenment. And of course, this is uh, this is uh, it's simple enough. It, one doesn't four noble truths based on suffering. It's nothing esoteric or metaphysical or highly philosophical. But in order to really understand it, we have to look at ourselves. In other words, it's not just finding out what the scriptures say or the commentaries or find definitions and and try to endlessly think and, can, uh, and analyze the teaching itself, but to put the teaching into practice. So the, the practice is always looking here at yourself, what you think is yourself. And, and so this, this is what bhavana, or uh, meditation, really is about. It's changing the direction from looking outward, trying to find security, and happiness as an external thing, too, looking inward, seeing the, the unhappiness, the discontentment, the resentment, the fear, the greed, the anger, uh, and so forth that we experience. And not, we're not looking at it in terms, no longer in terms of judgment or the critical mind, but beginning to recognize that these conditions are what they are in the present. But our relationship to them changes from seeing them from a personal perspective to seeing them as conditioned phenomena. So the Buddha you know, keeps reiterating this, that all conditions are impermanent. To see, to see the impermanency of fear or wanting something you don't have or not wanting what you have or uh, anger or greed or whatever form uh, whatever emotion you're experiencing to see it in its changingness rather than seeing it in terms of a worldly mind which is very much identified with it. It's, say anger for example is mine, my anger. And then from the worldly mind thinking who's, you made me angry, you're the cause of my anger and uh, therefore then I think that I should punish you for making me angry or you should stop doing the things that make me angry. <laughs> and then we get into arguments and the wars and problems uh, of the world arise from that. When we see it in terms of awakening to the real, then we see it is what it is. 
But we're looking at it now as conditioned phenomena rather than as some kind of personal defect or personal problem or seeing that the cause of it is due to somebody else or something else. So this is like the Buddha is, Buddhism is is an invitation. It's an invitation. It's not an uh, imperative. It's an invitation to awaken to the real. Now over the years, having this opportunity to live as a Buddhist monk has uh, been a rare, uh, you know, some, some surprise, miraculous experience of my life too. Because coming from my own background, with had no Buddhism in it whatsoever, being brought up as a Christian in the States, and uh, being from a kind of just middle class Christian family, you know, how I became, how I encountered Buddhism and, and had the opportunity to, to uh, and took the, had the interest, the faith of, of rise in it, and then to meet various teachers like Rung Po Cha, that had the wisdom to, to help me to see through all the illusions that I had about myself in the world. And this all seemed to happen in, uh, in a quite remarkable way because it wasn't kind of planned or expected. I never expected this to happen to me in this, in this life. So it is a, a kind of wonderful way to live. I look back at my life and I have enormous gratitude to, uh, to the Buddha, of course, because of the wisdom of his teaching that has been able to survive through so long a period of time from an ancient Indian period, so remote we don't really know much about it, to this present moment. This teaching is about human, about our humanity, common humanity. It's not about Indian civilization or culture or Asian. It's about being human. So it applies to all of us. You know, it's, whether it's not about old-fashioned uh, uh, ways that Asians suffered in 2,500 years ago. It's about human suffering that is common to every single human being from any age up to the present. So it's based on a universal reality rather than just cultural attitudes, cultural icons, cultural uh, biases, prejudices, superstitions, because you know, the Buddha placed his emphasis not on, on believing in various deities or metaphysical uh, theories or doctrines, but on these noble truths, suffering, its causes, the end of suffering, and the way of non-suffering. And so the Buddha, uh, the teaching becomes increasingly more simple as you understand it. Buddhism can, this is oftentimes taught these days, and there's so many books uh, and so many versions in different schools and, and different sects and nikayas of Buddhism. So it can look very complicated. The Tripitaka, the Holy Scripture, that would frighten anybody away. It's huge. <laughs> so <laughs> then you, 
you think if I have to learn all that, you know, how could you possibly have the time to, to learn all that scripture in one lifetime? Uh, but it is, you know, in spite of all that, the, it's very simple. It's down to there is suffering and the end of suffering. That I teach only two things, suffering and the end of suffering. So using this, this English translation, suffering, for dukkha, but it includes much more than what we might assume just from the English word itself. It's about discontentment, uh, you know, and, and just even when life is going well, when we, when everything is is fine, we still fear, you know. We recognize the possible that that everything's all right now, but it won't be in the future, or it can change. Unexpected things can happen. We can. Uh, lose our health, or lose our loved ones, lose our money, or whatever, because these are within this realm, you know, the, the way things are. So even life at its best, there's a certain amount of suffering in it because we can't sustain it, we can't keep life at its very best. Uh, but we have to allow things to change, and that's by letting go, not trying to control or manipulate the conditioned realm out of fear and ignorance, but opening to it and understanding it. So this Katina ceremony today, from an ancient time, the Buddha used to, you know, out of his compassion, uh, he always put us put the um, samanas on the lowest possible standard for survival. He did allow us to have something to wear. Now there were naked ascetics at that time, the Nagantas, so they were even more ascetic than Buddhist monks. But the Buddha did permit us to wear robes. And so this, this is why Buddhism is doing much better than uh, Naked asceticism. <laughs> this is not a climate for naked asceticism. Right? <laughs> the robes then were based on the, on the you know what is uh, the lowest possible standard. So, uh, rags, thrown away cloth, that the village people or town people just threw away. Or we, we were allowed, the Buddha allowed us to go into charnel grounds and take the cloth off of corpses. And that sounds really hideous, doesn't it? Imagine trying, taking cloth off a rotting corpse and then washing it and making a robe. So, I mean, some of it's pretty gruesome, you know, when you think of that this is what we're allowed as a basic requirement to make patched robes, something to, to cover the body. But then the Katina ceremony, you see, is the lay people, the lay communities, the villagers, the townspeople, even royalty, gained, as they gained respect for the, for the samanas, then, of course, they wanted to offer ma nice material, newly woven material. And probably uh, India 2,550 years ago, cloth was much more difficult to come by. Now it's not. We've got so much cloth. <laughs> but I imagine then it was much more precious because so many of our rules around uh, cloth in our vinaya is around 
you know, respecting cloth. And so this is, uh, the, this is the Buddha said, yes, you, the lay people can offer the cloth. The monks then can use uh, this cloth to make their robes, which saves us from those grisly searchings for rags, uh, taking cloth off of corpses and things that we would have to do if you didn't come today and offer a cloth. <laughs> and if king, the king of Thailand didn't offer the robe. So, I mean, this is... <laughs> but you see, the whole idea of the samana is based on, not on expecting the best, but, you know, our standard is being content with, with, with even the worst. So then, uh, then of course, because we always people are considerate and they try to give the best that they have, then we experience gratitude. So the samana life is a life based on contentment with little and gratitude. And this, they, these are beautiful qualities that modern free market capitalist systems don't encourage in us. I don't remember in my own background ever. Uh, you know, such being a content was not ever a suggestion to me from the United States. Imagine American that's content. <laughs> it's unthinkable. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you, you know, your idea is that you're always trying to improve, keeping up with the Joneses and envying your neighbors and, um, you know, Thinking that you you want to if if your neighbors have something better than you have you want to get something better than they have and, and it goes on and on like that the capitalist system advertising is always making you discontented isn't it you know all this junk mail you receive is trying to you know not trying to lead you towards peace and contentment but towards discontentment and so the society we live in you have to recognize it's like this that the Society we live in is not a, is not based on wisdom or dhamma, but on uh, creating greed and uh, and vanity. How to make yourself more beautiful and and try to you know create sense sense of being somebody, of attaining, of achieving status. Now you know you hear about the celebrity culture that seems to have developed the past few years of just, you know, kind of people just noted for being noted. That they have any abilities whatsoever, <laughs> except they're called celebrities. And now this is, this creates a, an, an illusion, isn't it, of wanting to become somebody and be somebody. Or making you discontented with what you have. Now, contentment then is uh, something that that we don't generally incline to, because if the untrained mind tends to, you know, through greed and desire, wanting, wanting something. So you know, you can see it in the animal realm. You know, you go to the zoo, watch the monkeys. You know, they, you know, they're always trying to take away each other's things or. It's not about delighting in the happiness of another monkey eating the banana, but it's... 
this is just the way nature is, and, and we're part of that nature. But also the Buddha pointed out the, the, that through uh, our own efforts, through our own willingness to awaken and investigate our lives, we can transcend that, just the greed, the habitual greed and, and uh, sensory stimulation uh, that we have all the time too. Uh, realize, to awaken to, real, to the reality, to the, to the Dhamma. Now this word Dhamma then is, is, re, is the real. It's also, it's not about uh, anything conceptual. You know, you can't, when you try to conceive Dhamma as being this or that, you have to revert to kind of abstract words like the truth or whatever, but the, re the reality is the awakened consciousness that we begin to recognize through mindfulness and awareness. So this is what Buddhist meditation is about, what bhavana really is, is, is learning to recognize a very simple reality in yourself of awakened conscious attention in the present, in which you can then begin to see you know, investigate uh, suffering, its causes, the causes of suffering is desire and attachment to it, and then to be able to let go of the causes, to realize the end of suffering. Now this is uh, it's quite amazing really to, that in this human form, this is what we're capable of, this is this is using a human birth, a human lifetime, wisely, so that you, you've not just lived your life, uh, you know, in a, just in a habitual way of just operating from habit, from greed, from anger, and all the rest. Because this is uh, the, what the Buddha pointed to, the human, human birth is one in which we can awaken we're not just helpless victims of uh, human conditioning or the sensory world or the animal kingdom. You know, we're not. We, we, we have all the animal desires. We aren't that much different. We have animals, animal bodies. Our bodies are not that much different from, from monkeys or apes or even dogs. You know, so mammalian creatures, we all you know, reproduced in the same way, and we all have greed, wanting to something we have to eat and drink and survive, procreation of the species. This is the common common animal karma that we share. Now if we we can operate just on that level, just following our desires, our instincts for survival and procreation and getting food and, and, and uh, protecting ourselves from, from others, from the enemy. But we can also, the, in this word human then means awakened to the real. So we're not just, just helpless victims of, of, uh, of our bodies, of our desires, our habits. We, the, through mindfulness, then we awaken to the habitual tendencies we have, good and bad ones, or whatever. 
And so this is, this is now being sought after in countries like this that before had no knowledge, had no, seemed to have no understanding of this, of this kind of wisdom. And so we've had to go to places like Thailand or Sri Lanka <laughs> because it's too hard to find in our own, in our own culture to find uh, this kind of wisdom in, within, our, within the boundaries of our own cultural conditions. And I think Buddhism stands out in this way, the Buddha Dhamma teaching, because uh, it is uh, very direct, very clearly stated, and a very precise tool. Now this, uh, this when we look at the Pali tradition, in the Theravada Buddhist uh, tradition, this, uh, these teachings are, uh, you know, if understood and used properly, they're, very, they're very clear, very simple, very direct, and they're looking, you know, they're not, you're not, you don't have to look outside and find something out there. You don't have to go to some place. You don't have to go to India or some place to get it. It's just learning to awaken to yourself, to the suffering that you're experiencing in the present. And using that awakened consciousness to investigate and see the causes of suffering. Because the causes of suffering are all from ignorance of reality, of just operating from the force of habit, from greed, hatred, and delusion, from just wanting and not wanting things. Also, in you know, this what we're sharing at this moment, all of us, is consciousness. We're all conscious beings. And so this is the common bond we share at this very moment. Everybody here, everybody everywhere in the world, we're all experiencing consciousness. And so this is, uh, and so this is like awakening means to awaken to this reality, consciousness. Then we tend to identify ourselves with the body, with the cultural conditioning, social conditioning, with, with a sense of our self-worth, uh, with our identities, national, ethnic, racial, whatever, gender identities, we, we become committed to these identities which always create separation. So the Buddha was pointing to that which we have in common, which is consciousness. We share that with the animals, you know, it's not just human. But consciousness, this is a conscious realm that we're experiencing. But the human individual can awaken to, the, to this. We can, you know, through meditation, through mindfulness, we actually begin to recognize co pure consciousness. Because it's here and now, it's not something that you create or have to get in some special place, but just recognize it. And so, like the Four Noble Truths is a, is a very skillful tool, a Buddha uh, expedient means, it's a convention, admittedly, but it is for investigating the causes that bind us to birth and death, to the ignorance, the illusions that we are, the, what we think we are.
like we all tend to identify with our bodies and so this you know you what we look like you know with the age of the body with the color of the body with the gender of the body we we we're f firmly committed to this as as me and mine but when we begin to just observe rather than create the illusion of of this body is me then the body is what it is and we're looking we're observing it we're not denying it or trying to convince ourselves that you know that it's not self but it is it's seen in in consciousness rather than uh creating projecting into consciousness these illusions of that i am this physical body so what it does is we're actually awakening to the real to the deathless i like to use words like deathless because it is a because it you, what that what does that do to your mind when i say the deathless and then you, can you conceive can you imagine the deathless you know you can you know, try to try to imagine form an image of the deathless that which that which is never born never dies and of course you know from my own experience my own investigations you can't imagine it because imagination is a created thing and so you can imagine anything else you know whether it's true or false right or wrong beautiful ugly any shape color abstract whatever but the deathless or try to imagine not self anatta that's a great fascinating concept that puzzles people's minds because the sense of a self seems so strong seems so real our reality is me i know that i exist i'm sitting here ajahn samedo sitting here this i know that i'm here but when i look at this very thought that i am ajahn samedo and i'm here this is this is a creation isn't it this language i am and the name and so investigating uh the conditions that we tend, that we create and we identify with we we see that we don't have to create ourselves at all that our true nature is is reality that you know we we awaken to the real where the differences the the uh, in in appearance in gender in race in um whatever is merely conventional it's not ultimately real and it is what it is you're not trying to judge it in terms of good better best bad worse worse or true and false or right and wrong but observing that all conditions the body of course is obvious it's going to die we all know we will die and so you know the body is then because it was born it it will die and that then then it's doing what it should do getting old and dying is what all bodies should be doing if they're not there's something wrong with you <laughs> that's something to worry about <laughs> but that which is aware of that you see this is this is you can't conceive it but you can recognize it 
it, you awaken to pure conscious pure consciousness it's intelligent here and now and it's not personal I can't claim it as some kind of personal uh, personal ability that I've that I have that or have more of than you. If I start thinking like that, then I'm back in the illusion of a self again. So this is to be tested out, you know, so like here in Amravati, the whole aim of this monastery is for this kind of investigation. Uh, and this uh, this is all that I'm really interested in because this is the most important, you know, the rest is uh, is not important, to, but to to see, to break through the illusions of uh, of attachment, uh, that out of ignorance of not understanding, of not awakening to reality, living in the world of habit of of uh, mistaken identity, uh, and then the then being caught in the results of that of that being the suffering that is the result of that ignorance. So this is, uh, you know, like an encouragement to you all to recognize that Buddha, the Buddha Dhamma, Buddhism is a term of course can mean anything really. It, it, it's a, Buddhism doesn't necessarily mean Dhamma. There's all kinds of Buddhists and Buddhism now available. But uh, the Dhamma, or the, what the Buddha, the Buddha never taught Buddhism, he taught the Dhamma, or the way it is. So this is, this is, you know, when people get confused about the different schools, and Mahayana, and Hinayana, and Vajrayana, and Theravada, and we have all these various opinions and views about greater, lesser, bigger, better, the true, the real, the pure, whatever. These are human projections. You know, this is, these, this is not important, trying to consider which is the better, but awakening to the present. This is the, this is the direct teaching of Dhamma. So in uh, this, this reflection, then, you know, like the, when we take the refuges, like you did uh, this afternoon, uh, is taking refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, Bhutang Sarnangachami. What you're doing, this is not taking refuge in some kind of abstract idea of Buddha, but in awareness. You know, you begin to internalize it, seeing that Bhutang Sarnangachami is mindfulness here and now. It's not just something in some kind of Buddha force as you conceive it, as some kind of Buddha energy out there. But it's, you know, you're pointing it inward again, seeing that the Bhutang Sarnam Gachami is when we're aware, we're taking refuge in awareness, in Buddha, in awakened consciousness. And then Tamang Sarnam Gachami is, the Buddha knows, the re, knows reality. So when we take refuge in awareness, mindfulness, wisdom, then we know Dhamma, we are refuges in in the real, in the true, and the sangha, sankhang ternangachami is, is is that's all of us that are practicing this. 
that recognize this and live by this, by practicing, by living in the real and, um, and, and cultivating this real, the, the real in our lives to break, to let go of the illusions that we tend to blindly hold on to. So this is a, a timeless teaching. So it's not not like new age or new discovery or, or modern, you know, in any way. It's quite ancient, and yet it fits well into modern life. When we talk about the problems between religion and science or psychology, and and all the problems around belief and you hear, you know, in this country, all the problems around believing or not believing in God or theistic religions or different, different forms of belief and, and whether God exists or doesn't and whether they should say prayers in schools or should other people be forced to say Christian, sing Christian hymns in schools. <laughs> it goes on endlessly about trying to figure out, you know, you're trying to be tolerant and open to other religions or which, you know, is certainly better than being intolerant, that you can say. But it, it's endlessly confusing because we're always working from ideas of, of, from others. We, we haven't really investigated, known for ourselves. We're merely operating maybe from what somebody else suggests or our own feelings of the moment our own preferences. So in, and, and in science, you know, we think of science as the kind of ultimate uh, human attainment. Being reasonable, being scientific. And of course, uh, modern science has quite, you know, produced some kind of miraculous results. Whenever I go on, go on a plane, I think, you know, what holds this this heavy thing up in the air, you know? You know, and my feeble intellect can't imagine what how this this huge monstrous seven four seven is going to get off the ground. But it does. <laughs> and how it can stay up there for the eleven, twelve hours it takes to get to Bangkok. <laughs> <laughs> it is quite amazing, you know, then the computers and, and all this, uh, they, we're able to manipulate the conditioned world through modern rational science, not to be despised, but it's also limited, you know, and through attachment to science on that level, it still, we still suffer and, and we don't understand the suffering that we're experiencing like computer rage and that people, you know, throw their computers on the floor or something when they, when they... <laughs> that is not mentioned in the traditional Vinaya. Because <laughs> computer rage didn't exist in India 2,550 years ago, but now it does in India too. So, I mean, this uh, kind of anger and not, you know, wanting perfection from the imperfect, wanting something to work, you know, uh, technology to be perfect for us so that we never feel frustrated or angry with it. And yet, we can get very enraged when it doesn't do what we want. 
And so the, with modern science, uh, you know, the, with this emphasis on Dhamma or the way it is, it's not a denial or a rejection of that, but it puts it in its proper perspective where the rational mind, the reasonableness, logic, and ability to analyze is, is seen, it's respected, but it's not our attachment anymore. We're not trying to, to use this in order to judge ourselves or other people. We've often used our rational abilities to be critical of others. And how many of you have been very critical of people who, who aren't being rational, being emotional and irrational? You know, and we think, this is, you know, we, we can see that as weak or we have ways of judging it, putting it down because being rational is, uh, you know, is what we admire. But rationality is also very limited. The world we live in is not necessarily rational at all. It's like this, it's a feeling world. It's about senses, about feeling, about change. It's not ideal, it's not the way we would like it to be. It's not what we imagine, how we'd like everything to be at its best, but it's this way. So that this awakening then is really awakening to the real, to see for ourselves and to know uh, Dhamma, to know reality being that reality itself. So we had this Vasa, traditional Vasa retreat, starting in July, ending in last month, three months, and then this traditional Katina ceremony. And um, this is this is part of a tradition, so it's uh, it's something that a tradition carries this teaching. It's been this teaching of Four Nobles has been able to survive through the risings and fallings and that of empires and kingdoms from ancient India to the present time. It survived because it's based on wisdom rather than on fashion or intellectual preferences or ideals uh, from the past. It's about you and me and suffering and its causes. And when we and then we can learn from ourselves, you know, it's not about, you know, seeing other people suffer, but even even if we sometimes think we don't suffer, we you know, we do if we really look. Sometimes we, we don't want to admit it our own vulnerability and sensitivity, what it is all about. So it's not in order to become depressed and negative, but it has its opposite effect. It opens us. We, be, we, we realize our true nature is the deathless, is Dhamma, and not these very vulnerable, changing, unstable conditions, physical bodies, emotional habits, uh, views and opinions, ideas and thoughts, depending on uh, uh, an economy that, that isn't crashing, uh, wanting uh, uh, an environment that will be stable and not disruptive, uh, and all the rest, wanting guarantees for 
of our being youthful forever and never dying. And, uh, you know, that sounds pretty awful. Imagine never dying and having to live in one of these things forever. I mean, I can't imagine why anybody even thinks that's desirable in any way. When you get my age, you're quite looking forward to getting rid of it. <laughs> it isn't so nice when you're old to, you know, to think of just getting, getting older and older forever. <laughs> so, you know, in, in that's the advantage of old age is that, you, you know, the illusions that I had when I was younger have fallen away. The romantic illusions about life are gone, and it's much more seen in a more direct way. So this afternoon, just to encourage you uh, and to, uh, you know, to try to inspire you to, to recognize the, the, uh, the, the beauty of this teaching and to also to uh, express the Sangha, for the Sangha in general, its genuine appreciation uh, for the generosity that, that you've shown us, for us to be able to live this life in such a pure way and to, uh, to, have the, to encourage us towards this insight, this understanding and liberation through awareness. So I offer this for your reflection. Thank uh -huh.